millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 38, Tsar Alexei, Riot and Reform. Thanks for listening. Now, I have a confession to make. You see, I was going to try being really clever and welcome you all in Polish. Just for a bit of fun, but also because we've been talking about Poland over the past few episodes with all the Commonwealth stuff, and unlike others, Poland has played a major role in the Ukrainian refugee situation. Plus, the traditional, hello everyone, seems a bit old hat. And I'm not using Russian greetings at the moment. So, that's the rationale. But when I looked at what saying a breezy, hi everyone, in Polish would entail, I basically chickened out. Now, I'll put the actual words in the episode notes later, but for now I'll spell it out and maybe you'll see what I mean. So the first bit, or the first word, looks the easiest. It's spelt out C-Z-E-S-C. But to make things more complicated, there are a couple of diacritical marks or accents above the S and the C. And if that's not enough, then the second word is the utterly terrifying W-S-Z-Y-S-T-K so that's seven consonants in a row I-M I haven't even got a clue how to even go about pronouncing those two words Now I apologise to all Polish speakers for basically ripping into your language but if there's anyone out there who can provide any tips I am prepared to give it a go or another go well, I haven't given it one go, so it can't be another go. But, obviously, I'll need a suitable period of rehearsal, of course. So, if you speak Polish, and you know how to say those two words, which, of course, you should do, then drop me a line. Okay, that's enough frivolity. 
In the most recent episode that covered the main chronological narrative, we looked at Russia's key adversaries, Sweden and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and then finished off by covering Russia between the years 1620 and 1645, a period which was overseen by Tsar Mikhail Romanov and his dad, the patriarch-senior Tsar Philaret. This week we'll be doing an appraisal of and a conclusion to Tsar Mikhail's reign, a time of recovery, retrenchment and stability in Russia that followed the cataclysmic mayhem of the Time of Troubles. And then there's a change of plan. Now I was going to cover the first part of his son's Alexei's reign, but instead we'll spend part of this episode and all of the next covering Alexei's time in charge from the perspective of his character and domestic policy stroke events only. And then in the episode after next, we'll cover the same time span through the prism of foreign and military affairs. Now this split along foreign and domestic lines instead of the traditional chronological order feels a little awkward, counterintuitive and to a certain degree is fraught with unnecessary risk. But fortune favours the bold, or so I'm told. And anyway, if it doesn't work out, I can always revert to the old way of doing things. But let's give it a go, and apologies to any of you who were looking forward to another round of Russian, Swedish and Commonwealth military shenanigans. All of that will have to wait for a couple of weeks. Before I start, there's just a couple of announcements and messages that I need to run through. Plus, I need to do my usual monthly round of shameless self-promotion. So a couple of weeks ago, I went through the schedule of forthcoming episodes, and I just wanted to reiterate that again, albeit, as just mentioned, with a minor adjustment or two. So as just stated, the next two episodes after this will finish off the Alexeian period, and then after that, the order will be Russian society and serfdom, which will hopefully go down well in Ljubljana, Tsar Feodor, Cossacks and Tartars, and then there'll be a state of the nation to round everything off before we get into Peter the Great territory. Secondly, a couple of listeners have asked me about the music that appears at the end of each episode. Well, the easy answer is, I really don't know what it is. I got the clip from a copyright-free site called Freesound, and all it says is Russian church music from Karelia. And Karelia is the bit of Russia directly east of Finland. Anyway, I'm thinking of changing the music. And if I do, I'll make sure to find out a bit more about the actual source. OK, and finally, if you want to leave me a rating or review, then you can do that on either the website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or you can always follow or subscribe to the podcast on whichever channel or platform you listen in on. And remember, if you want to contact the podcast with a comment or question, as a number of you have, then you've got three options. That's via the new website, which is www.historyofrussia.net, or Twitter, where I'm HistoryRussia1, and then finally, there's email, nordicworld, that's all one word, nordicworld at outlook.com. 
Okay, with all that out of the way, let's finally get on and do some actual history of Russia. And let me start by posing a rhetorical question. Just how had it been possible, after the chaos of the Time of Troubles, for Russia to have become, by 1645, massively territorially enlarged and politically and economically stable under the leadership of Mikhail, who was elected as Tsar in 1613, aged 16, as an untried, some would say, compromise candidate with absolutely no relevant experience, and his father, the chameleon-like patriarch Philaret, who had, it could be argued, been part of the original problem. Or to put it another, more simple way, how had Russia managed to survive the time of troubles, or as it was also called in Soviet times, the Peasants' War, and then later on, the Civil War? So let's spend a bit of time looking at, in no particular order, the answers to those two questions, and the reasons for that arguably unlikely outcome. Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that things couldn't have gotten any worse, and when backs are to the wall, it tends to collectively concentrate minds on priorities, like survival and stability. Russia's first actions, once Mikhail had been elected, were to sign peace deals with both of its external enemies, and then, when the opportunity presented itself, get rid of any further challenges from Cossacks or impostors. Hence the executions and deaths of the Cossack Zarutsky, the baby brigand young Ivan, and Marina. Then you had a huge slice of luck in that the Thirty Years' War meant that Sweden, and to a lesser extent the Commonwealth, focused their attention westwards, towards Middle Europe, rather than on Russia. And apart from a couple of brief periods of military conflict at the beginning of Mikhail's reign, 1613 to 1618, and then again with the Smolensk War in the early 1630s, Russia put to bed, for a while, its hopes of becoming a major European power and its westward expansion, and looked instead to the east, A, for territorial acquisition, and B, to increase its trading revenues. In short, Peace and money brought stability, which brought more peace and more money, and so on and so forth. Three of the pillars of Russian society, Tsardom stroke autocracy, or autocracy even, the Orthodox Church, and the uneducated, salt-of-the-earth, God-fearing, patriotic and largely obedient peasantry, remained intact, and indeed were probably strengthened during Mikhail and Philaret's time in charge. And therefore, subsequently, the main losers from the chaos were the aristocracy, i.e. the nobles and senior boyars, who rather than controlling the Tsar via the boyar council, which, I have to admit, was my original understanding, were themselves controlled by the monarchy and the Zemsky Sabor, the latter having a much broader representation of junior boyars, landowners, and a growing middle class. All of which, A, eradicated factionalism and strife amongst the highest echelons of society, and B, perpetuated and enhanced levels of political stability and economic growth. 
It's often been said, on this podcast at least, that Russia did and does best when it has stability coupled with a strong, able and sane ruler. And I've underlined the words able and sane. And Mikhail, over a period of 32 years, both on his own and jointly with his father, and as an aside, this is the only time that father and son have ruled together in Russian history, after an uncertain start, turned out to be a better Tsar than most people had expected, myself included. And even his much maligned, stroke misunderstood father gets a reluctant, affirmative nod. Plus, by the time Mikhail died in 1645, probably exhausted by it all, he had also managed to ensure, via another slice of luck it has to be said because so many of his children died young, that the Romanov dynasty was safe and secure in the hands of his only remaining son, the 16-year-old Alexei. However, Alexei Mikhailovich Romanov would prove to be a different kettle of fish and would have his own ways of going about things. Alexei was born in 1629, and whilst we know very little about his early years, we do know that the key figure during his childhood was his tutor, the Europhile Boris Morozov, who straight after Alexei's coronation in September 1645 would be promoted to chief minister, and would become the first of many factional favourites, something we know that Alexei's father had avoided. And whereas at age 16, Mikhail had been a nervous, sickly, introverted character who had had trouble even walking, his son at the same age was on his way to becoming a strapping, six-foot-tall, gentle giant of a man, well, gentle most of the time, whose two main passions were hunting, especially falconry, and there were reportedly 3,000 birds of prey kept in the royal aviary, and religion. Now I'm not sure that Alexei's religious zeal can be appropriately described just as a passion, particularly in the 17th century where religion fundamentally governed people's lives and there was no real choice in the matter. Not that anyone really wanted or expected a choice. But whatever it's best described as, the new Tsar had it in spades. As noted in Simon Seabag Montefiore's superb book on the Romanovs, simply entitled The Romanovs, each day Alexei woke up at 4am, 4am, and prayed for 20 minutes in his private chapel before receiving his favourite ministers and retainers and going through a kind of daily status update. Then at 9am there was a two-hour mass, followed by dinner at midday and a nap, and then it was back to church again, a round of further meetings, and then more prayers before bedtime. At Easter, it's reported that the Tsar would pray for six hours at a time, prostrating himself over 1,000 times. He was known to all as the young monk, although I doubt that, particu I doubt that particular sobriquet was ever used in front of him, as one of the aspects of his character was his ferocious temper, which would often display itself during council meetings when he would often thump or slap ministers if he didn't agree with their point of view or they said something particularly stupid. But if Alexei was quick to lose his temper, 
he was also quick to regain it. His default setting was a kind of gentle affability, and he acquired the moniker Tishaishi, which means most quiet or most peaceful. And his reign started quite quietly. Peace was maintained with the foreign powers allowing Alexei and Morozov to concentrate on domestic matters. And whilst both men were keenly interested in Western culture and learning, it didn't stop them from limiting the privileges enjoyed by the foreign merchants who lived in Moscow's German quarter or the Nemetskaya Sloboda. And just as an aside, these so-called German quarters, which weren't full of Germans, it's just that the term in Russian Nemets or Nemets is the same for both. And that had evolved and been set up back in the late 1500s. Now originally, not every foreign trader or artisan in Moscow had to live in the foreign quarter, but during the 1640s and driven in the main by pressure from the Orthodox Church, they were forced to. It was either the foreign quarter or off home you go. And the foreign group that really fell foul of Alexei's ire were the English. And this was driven not by a specific xenophobic anti-English bias. It was simply due to the fact that in 1649 they had beheaded their king, Charles I. And Alexei's response to this outrage was to break off diplomatic relations with London and ban all English merchants, notably those representing the Muscovy Company from Russia. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But putting love of foreign ideas but mistrust of foreigners to one side, Alexei and Morozov then decided to do something about the state of Russian society, and in particular, its morals which both viewed as being riven by all kinds of despicable vices, such as swearing, drunkenness, and sordid licentiousness. Musical instruments, swearing, tobacco smoking, and excessive drinking were all banned, although how these bans were enforced is not recorded. The church denounced sexual immorality, and Alexei even got rid of his entourage of dwarfs, what was it with the dwarves? I've never really understood that. Another priority, something which his father had left for far too long during the early years of his reign, was to get married and produce an all-important heir or three. And for this, Morozov arranged a bride show, which was effectively a competition 
where the participants were the Tsar and a host of young, noble Russian women, in particular the daughters of those noble and boyar families who were jostling for position and seniority. Six young women reached the final, and Alexei decided that the lucky winner would be Ephemia Vesevolovskaya, and the wedding was set for February 1647. Unfortunately, though, at a public ceremony just prior to the wedding, when the crown was put on her head, poor Ephemia fainted. Naturally, poison was suspected, but whatever the reason, Ephemia was now regarded as unfit, or as being unfit, for the role of Tsarina. And soon afterwards, and you're probably ahead of me here, the entire family was packed off to Siberia. Later in the year, Morozov put together a second bride show, which this time included two of the daughters of one of his protégés, Ilya Miloslavsky. But why two? Well, it would appear that Morozov's plan was that Alexei would marry the eldest girl, Maria, leaving the teenage Anna available for himself. Morozov was 57, by the way. And thus, at the drop of the hat, the chief minister, via marriage, would be related to the Tsar's family. And fortuitously for Morozov, the plan worked, and in January 1648, both weddings took place. Alexei and Maria would go on to have 13 children together, including a number of daughters and two sons, Fyodor and Ivan, who survived into adulthood, although for different reasons neither of the two boys enjoyed good health, but their stories for future episodes. I'm not sure how Anna Miloslavskaya felt about things, but Boris Morozov, now the Tsar's chief minister, and brother-in-law, was more than content with his life as a married man, and soon after, his stock rose even further, as Alexei had him promoted to boyar class, and then put him in overall charge of the state's finances, which was starting to go just slightly into the red, following a couple of decades of steady recovery and growth. And all of which provided the Tsar with more time to spend on praying, hunting, and fulfilling his matrimonial and dynastic duties. As Alexei would soon find out though, Morozov was the wrong man to be put in charge of the purse strings. That's for two reasons really. First one, because even though he'd previously supervised a number of government departments such as the Streltsy, the pharmacy and the payroll, he had very little experience of how the state's economy actually functioned. But more importantly, because he was completely corrupt and he saw his new role role, as providing him with plenty of opportunities to feather his own nest. And this nest feathering was achieved in two fairly simple ways. First, he reduced the salaries of all the state employees. And then second, he raised taxes across the board, siphoning off a percentage of both of the savings and the increased revenues into his own pocket. And before long, and unseen, or if it was seen, ignored by the Tsar, Morozov's faction were being viewed as self-seeking and corrupt, and then in late 1648, the chief minister took a measure which in hindsight he would come to regret. He hiked up the tax on salt, 
not for the first, second or third time, but for the fourth. Or he didn't do that and he put up the tax once, effectively putting it up four times what it was. Now this salt tax was an indirect tax, but seeing as the whole population needed salt to survive, much as we do today, no, no difference there, the increase impacted everybody, but it hit the poorest the hardest, and this soon proved to be the tipping point. In June 1648, Alexei was returning to Moscow from a pilgrimage to a nearby monastery with his retainers when he was suddenly surrounded by an angry, hostile crowd who started remonstrating with him regarding the behaviour of his corrupt officials, which by all accounts was new to him, or news to him. Alexei, thinking on his feet, took the sting out of the situation by promising to investigate and then hurriedly left for the safety of the palace. But far from placating the situation, the protesters, once they'd realised that they'd probably been fobbed off, made their way to Morozov's mansion, broke down the doors and started looking for the chief minister. Oh, and whilst they were there, they broke into the wine cellar and proceeded to get blindingly drunk. They then went on the rampage throughout Moscow, looking for the guilty or the scapegoats, by this stage it really didn't matter, and this drunken orgy of violence, known to history as the Salt Riot, lasted throughout the night and into the next morning. Morozov, though, had been tipped off and had escaped, unlike two of his faction who were later caught by the mob and butchered and was now hiding out somewhere in the Kremlin. The next day, Alexei rode out and addressed the crowd. Essentially, he apologised for the behaviour of his ministers and told, him, told them that prices would be reduced and reforms would be made. To loud cheers from the protesters, although possibly not too loud because most of those who were present were either still drunk or hungover. But... Nazar went on to say that whilst he knew that Morozov was guilty, his punishment would be exile and not death, and justified his decision on the basis that Morozov was an old man and part of the family. I mean, how could he possibly harm his wife's sister's husband? And on the 12th of June, the chief minister, surrounded by guards, started out on the first stage of his long trip to confinement in a monastery on the shores of the Arctic Ocean. But the whole thing was a ruse cooked up by Alexei, and within four months, no, before winter had really set in, Boris Morozov was back, and throughout late 1648 and 1649, he was working with the Tsar and others on a series of reforms. But, for the rest of his life, he would die in 1661, Alexei made sure that Morozov, whilst safe, protected and living in the lap of luxury, remained well and truly in the background, and the Tsar had a number of other ministers, including his father-in-law, Ilya Miloslavsky, Nikita Odoevsky, Afanasy Ordin Nashchokin, and Artemon Matveyev, who would gradually start to handle most of the ministerial and administrative heavy lifting. So what were these reforms that I just mentioned uh, that everyone was beaving away at and why were they so important? Well, there were two types, military, 
which we'll cover in a couple of episodes' time when we're looking at Alexei's foreign policy and campaigns, and legal, which we'll look at now. So the main drivers or themes and aims for the new legal code, or the Sobornoa Bulogenia of 1648-49, were threefold. And the main one really was to address the mayhem and lawlessness that had been a feature of the recent salt riot. In Alexei's mind, the root causes had been dealt with, i.e. taxes had been reduced and Morozov had been punished, well, sort of. Now it was time to show the population that any further protests against the established order, i.e. the nobility and the church, would be harshly dealt with. So no more Mr Nice Guy. So let's have a look at some examples of, of what made it into the law code, which means it's time for me to dust off my special quotation stroke Ivan the Terrible stroke Genghis Khan voice. Here we go. Article 19. If someone should know or hear of the existence of mass discontent or a conspiracy or any other evil design against his Tsarist majesty, but fails to report it, either to the sovereign or his boyars, or his high assistants, or other officials of the central government in provincial cities, and then the sovereign should find out that that person was aware of the existence of such action, but failed to report it, and an inquiry be conducted into it, such persons should be sentenced to death without mercy. Then we have Article 20. During an insurrection, mass discontent or conspiracy, no one should break into or rob or inflict bodily harm on his Tsarist Majesty, his boyars, his high assistants, members of the Boyar Duma, Council of Notables, you get the picture, and other officials in provincial cities. And then finally, Article 21. Well, not finally, but it's finally in this series of examples. Whoever should initiate mass discontent or a conspiracy against his Tsarist Majesty or his boyars or his blah, 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 those persons who initiate it should be condemned to death without mercy. The second driver or theme was to set the ground rules and legal framework for the institution of serfdom. Now, as mentioned previously in the episode, we'll be covering this in detail via a specific episode. But in essence, the code consolidated Russia's slaves and free peasants into a new serf class and pronounced class hereditary as unchangeable. So once a serf, always a serf. To replace and reorganise the law code, and this is the third theme, or Sudebnik that had been introduced in 1550 by Ivan the Terrible, and which was no longer fit for purpose, mainly because of the number of amendments, some of them contradictory, that had been made in the intervening period by various ministers and departments. So, to get all of this done, the advisory, and I've underlined the word advisory, Assembly of the Land, or the Zemsky Sabor, was convened, and a special committee headed by Prince Nikita Odoyevsky, was created. Members of the committee included Prince Semyon Prozovrovsky, 
Fyodor Volonsky, as well as the scribes Gavrila Leontiev and Fyodor Griboyadov. So how did this all work? Basically, Alexei and his ministers set the guidelines, and I'm doing inverted commas there. In other words, they told the members of the Zemsky Sabor what they wanted the legal code to contain. The Zemsky Sabor went through the motions of debating that and then agreed to the guidelines. The special committee drafted the outcome, i.e. the actual laws, which were then debated again just for good form before in January 1649 the final version was produced for sign-off. And the original of this historical document is a scroll consisting of 959 narrow sections. And at the end of the document are 315 signatures of members of the Zemsky Sabor, and the signatures of the scribes are located in the margins for each section. Later, a copy of the scroll was transcribed into book format and printed twice, with 1,200 copies made on each run. All Zemsky Sabor members endorsed a further number of handwritten copies of the Uloženia with their signatures, and these were then distributed to all state offices or prikazes in Moscow. A century and a bit later, during the reign of Catherine II, or Catherine the Great, a silver ark was created to store the original scroll, and today the original document is housed in Moscow's Kremlin armoury. The core elements of Alexei's 1649 law code survive well into the 19th century, and today the Soborne Urogenia is considered to have been fundamental to the development of modern Russian jurisprudence. Okay, that's where we'll leave it for this week. Apologies for the voice again, although I do think it is getting slightly better, but it still finds some of those Russian pronunciations slightly tricky. Next time we'll continue our look at Russia on the domestic front, taking in riots, mainly in but not confined to the north of the country, and Cossack rebellions in the south. So obviously the punishments in the new legal code didn't quite solve the problem. And then we'll get to meet someone who at first greatly impressed Alexei, but was to go on to be the cause of much dissent and conflict within the very heart of Russian life, the seventh patriarch of Moscow, Nikon. So until then, and as I always say, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon.